As I mentioned a moment ago, today's scripture reading is 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 26 and 51 through 58. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not yet been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. May 8th edition of the New York Times podcast, The Daily, began thusly. It came to the United States from Asia and first appeared in Washington State. The country was slow to recognize it, Deaths mounted as it circulated for weeks undetected. And now, if it's not stopped, it could reshape populations and industries across the country. 
Now I know what you're thinking. Oh boy, here comes another coronavirus story. And after the slightest pause, the host, Michael Barbero, continued in his inimitable voice, Today we discuss the arrival of the Asian giant hornet. The Asian giant hornet. Vespa mandarinia is more colloquially known as the murder hornet. And the main reason for this moniker is because of what they do to honeybee, to honeybee hives. And so when murder hornets find a, a, a beehive, uh, they invade it. And the invasion is absolutely brutal. They're, they're so much bigger um, than the honeybees. They come in, they invade uh, the beehive, and immediately they start to decapitate their victims. It, 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 it's, it, it's, it's, it's brutal. It's vicious. They are uh, well-oiled killing machines, and what they leave is utter carnage, just, just heaps of headless bee corpses in their wake. And as, as almost to add insult to injury, when you come upon the hive filled with these decapitated bees, they've left behind the honey itself untouched. Now, the threat posed by murder hornets is no joke because of, as many of us have come to realize over the course of the past few years, much of our food supply depends on pollinators uh, who have been mysteriously dying in droves even before these murder hornets arrived on our shores late last year. And the murder hornet's arrival in America has contributed to the overall sense that, that 2020 is being written by a scriptwriter with a twisted imagination. If it can go wrong this year, it will. Now, in reading up on the murder hornets, I went down an internet rabbit trail that led me to discover a character named Coyote Peterson, who has made an entire career of being bitten and stung by nasty creatures. And so here's just a tiny little clip of what I found. And don't worry, folks, it cuts out at just the right moment. But I want you to see this. I'm Coyote Peterson, and I'm about to enter the sting zone with the Japanese giant hornet. One, two, here we go, three. Oh, searing pain, absolute searing pain. Okay. If you want to see the whole thing, just Google Coyote Peterson stung by murder hornet after uh, the sermon. Don't, don't, <laughs> don't go watch it right now. And you can watch an entire 18-minute video of this. It's, it's enthralling uh, entertainment, uh, streaming television. It's really great. Um, but so what does any of this have to do with 1 Corinthians 15? I'm glad you asked. It has everything to do with 1 Corinthians 15. Well, okay, at least something to do uh, with this passage. Because what terrifies me about the murder hornet is not what it does to, to honeybee hives, as terrible as that is. But what terrifies me about the murder hornet is what we just saw Coyote Peterson experiencing. The thought of having something so big sting my arm and having it hurt so bad, searing pain, as Mr. Peterson remarked. And uh, ever since I, I was a child, I've been terrified of bee stings. I, I still remember the first bee sting I ever got. I was 
pretty young because I was riding a big wheel uh, around the block with my best friend and neighbor, Andy Exley. And, and I remember just the feeling of, of a bug flying into my hair. And so I went up to swat it away. And when I did so, a bee stung my hand and it hurt so bad. And so ever since, I, I, I've been absolutely terrified of bees, especially hornets. Whenever I see one uh, fly in the vicinity, I, I run away in terror. And so here, though, in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul causes us to come face to face with something whose sting is incomparably worse than the murder hornet, and that is death itself. But instead of being afraid of its sting, Paul taunts death. He jeers death. He laughs in death's face. He, he smack talks death. And so I want to look at three things this morning. First, I want us to look at what, what is the sting of death? And second, what is it that takes death's sting away? And lastly, how do we live free from the fear of death's sting? So first, there's the sting of death. And when Paul taunts death at the end of our passage, uh, it's because of his hope in the resurrection of the dead. And when he says, you know, where, oh, death is your sting, that word for sting, it's, it's the same uh, word in Greek that's used for a, a, a desert scorpion's stinger. And while Paul is taunting death for losing its sting, there's no denying that death does sting. It hurts. Paul himself says that the sting of death is sin. So what is it about death that stings? Because one thing we can say for sure is that the Christian hope in resurrection does not mean that death doesn't hurt. Just because we have some hope for eternal life. Any of us who have lost someone that we love and care about know that we hate to be told the reasons why that person's death actually isn't so bad after all. No, death is the enemy, as Paul says. You know, it's one thing that we all know, that death stings, that it hurts, that it's, it's painful. And there's many reasons for that. And one of them is that death represents an end. It ends life, obviously, but it also puts an end to the, the plans we make. It puts an end to relationships, careers. It puts an end to opportunities for, for community and for serving others and for personal growth. With death, there are no more second chances. Death places a period at the end of our life's sentences. Second reason that death stings is that it separates it separates our souls from our bodies, leaving behind a cadaver, a corpse. What was once a living subject becomes a dead object. It separates us from the ones we love. When we die, there's no more conversations, no more holidays, no more hellos and goodbyes, no more phone calls or texts, no more hugs or kisses, no more birthday or Christmas presents. Death places an impenetrable wall of separation between us and them, between the living and the dead. Thirdly, death stings because it's irreversible. There's no going back. There's no coming back. There's no making amends. There's no tying up loose ends. The loss is irretrievable. The, the what-ifs, the should-haves, the would-haves, the could-haves, they haunt us. Fourthly, the sting of death is that it is unknown. None of us know what happens, exactly happens when we die. We don't know what it's like. We don't know what it will be like to pass from this life to 
the next. We can only guess. We can only hope. But where the real sting of death comes in is what Paul points us to in in verse 56. The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. And and so the real sting for Paul uh, of death comes in the fact that how we experience death, apart from God's grace, is as a punishment or a consequence of our rebellion against God. Death for Paul and death in Scripture is about so much more than than a change in our biological status. It's much darker than that. Death has a theological meaning. Death under the power of sin and under the law is separation from the presence of God, from the very source of life and light and blessing. Death and sin and death under the law is the very negation of all that we are and all we have been. Death in sin and and under the law are are hearing a divine no at the very end instead of a yes. Death in sin and under the law are captured by Jesus' cry of dereliction on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Death's horrible sting is that it reminds us as creatures that we have been alienated from our Creator. That our hearts will be forever restless because they cannot rest in Him. So that's the sting of death. And it hurts. But obviously, Paul believes that death sting has been taken away by Jesus. And so the question then is, is how? How has Jesus taken death sting away? How has he rendered death effectively impotent? And the answer that all of 1 Corinthians chapter 15 gives can be summed up in one beautiful, remarkable word. And that is resurrection. Resurrection has taken away the sting of death. 1 Corinthians 15, it's Paul's great chapter on the resurrection, and it's arguably the most important thing that he ever wrote. And its position at the end of of this letter indicates its significance. The ancient rhetoricians, uh, they understood uh, the the importance of of, uh, the effects of primacy and recency. That's what modern communications theory tells us, basically. Uh, You know, have a really good intro and have a really good conclusion. And so um, that's not a new idea. So basically, people remember the first things you say and the last things you say. So make it good. Make your beginning and your end count. Your beginning, draw them in. Your end, land the plane, as we like to say. Put the good stuff at the beginning and the end. And so this whole letter then has been leading to this moment. And, and, and Paul wrote this chapter, we learn in, in verse 12, this is why he wrote this chapter. Apparently there were some in the Corinthian church who were denying the resurrection of the dead. Now these were not, you know, 19th century uh, liberal skeptics or, or 20th century modernist Christians who had trouble believing in, in the resurrection because it sounded too supernatural or, or, or too miraculous. No, no. Now, we know that they, 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 they weren't these types of rationalist skeptics because everyone in the church believed that Jesus had been resurrected. Paul appeals to that common tradition in the first 11 verses when he reminds them of the gospel that he, he preached and that they hold on to and that they're standing firm in. At the core of that gospel is the resurrection of Jesus. But it seems as though some in the Corinthian church had come to believe that while Jesus might have been raised from the dead, it it had no impact or import for them. 
Sure, they thought something crazy happened to Jesus, but, but it doesn't apply to me. It doesn't apply to us. And we have to remember how strange this concept of resurrection would have sounded to Greek ears. Because most Greeks uh, believed that the, the, the body was a prison and the soul was trapped in there. And then at death, the, the soul was released from the body's prison. There's actually a, a wonderful play on words in Greek between the body, which is soma. That's where we get words like somatic. So your body is your soma. And, and then there's a, a tomb, which is a sema. So we can hear the word play. You don't need to be a Greek scholar to know soma, sema, sema, soma, uma, opera. Um, so you're at death, your soma uh, would, would uh, you know, be, be, your soul would be released from the soma, which was a sema. But for Jews like Paul, the resurrection meant that the ultimate hope for creation and the creatures within it was not disembodied heavenly bliss, but actually transformed bodily creaturely existence. Resurrection wasn't about life after death, as uh, N.T. Wright has said. It's about life after life after death. It wasn't about leaving earth for heaven, but about heaven coming down to earth and everything being transformed or, or changed, as Paul says in this passage. That was as confusing for the Corinthians as it is for us. It's much simpler to say that the good news is that Jesus died for our sins. And if we believe in him, our sins are forgiven. And so when we die, we go to heaven. It's simpler, but it's only half true. Yes, yes. Uh, the full truth is this, that yes, Jesus died for our sins and was raised, thus defeating death itself. And so when we die, we will for a time go and be in God's presence, but we await the resurrection of the dead and the life everlasting when God's kingdom will come and his will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And for Paul, this is a hugely significant point because he says that if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Jesus himself hasn't been raised because he was fully human. And he was not just our substitute, but he's also our representative. And if Jesus hasn't been raised, well, then Paul runs through that entire bleak counterfactual in verses 13 through 19. It's all of these ifs, ifs, ifs. Imagine this terrible scenario. It's like in It's a Wonderful Life. If George Bailey had never been born, then look at this disaster that would have unfolded. This is that uh, times infinity. And Paul captures it in verses 13 through 19. And I love Eugene Peterson's message uh, translation and paraphrase of those verses where he says, if there's no resurrection then there's no living Christ. And face it, if there's no resurrection for Christ, everything we've told you is smoke and mirrors. And everything you've staked your life on is smoke and mirrors. And not only that, but we would be guilty of telling a string of barefaced lies about God. All these affidavits we passed on to you verifying that God raised up Christ, sheer fabrications if there's no resurrection. If corpses can't be raised, then Christ wasn't, because he was indeed dead. And if Christ won't raise, then all you're doing is wandering about in the dark as lost as ever. And it's even worse for those who died hoping in Christ and the resurrection because they're already in their graves. If all we get out of Christ is a little inspiration for a few short years, we're a pretty sorry lot. Paul's basic point is this. If Jesus hasn't been raised, then sin and death have gotten the last word and we've been lying about God and you're pitiable fools because you've dedicated your life to a lie. Paul says, the sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. Right? If Jesus hasn't been raised, then death still 
stings. But he continues, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. He gives us the victory through Christ's resurrection, which has so many implications. One is that truth is stronger than falsehood. Jesus was crucified by men who, who told lies about what he had said he had come to do. But truth got the last word. Second, his resurrection means that good is stronger than evil. On Good Friday, it sure looked like evil had won. The earth was covered in darkness. But on Easter Sunday, good got the last word. Third, his resurrection means that love is stronger than hate. It says in God's, John's gospel that, that Christ was, was God's light that came into the world and it was a light for all people. But that, that the world hated the light because their deeds were evil and, and the light exposes that. And so the resurrection means that in the face of unfathomable evil, love will get the last word. Fourth, his resurrection means that forgiveness is stronger than sin. Jesus cried on the cross, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. And the resurrection means that while we are all dead in our sins, it is forgiveness that will get the last word. And finally, the resurrection means that life is stronger than death. Death did its worst to Jesus. Death killed the Lord of life. The one who with his touch brought life back to to Jairus' daughter. The one whose voice called the corpse of Lazarus out of the tomb. Death thought it had won, but life got the last word. And so when we belong to Jesus, what's true of him is true of us as well. And what that means is that we can live with real hope. As one commentator said, he said that that resurrection means we have an endless hope. But without resurrection, we face a hopeless end. Resurrection means that we can live with endless hope, but without resurrection, we face a hopeless end. And, and, and real hope is this. Hope is hearing the music of God's future today, and, and faith is dancing to that music now. Which brings us to our last point which is the the conclusion to to Paul's great chapter and his teaching on resurrection. It comes right in verse 58. He sums it all up this way. He says, therefore, so because of everything he's just said, therefore, because the resurrection is true, my beloved brothers and sisters, be steadfast, be immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor has not been in vain. So because of everything that Paul has said about the reality of our hope in the resurrection, we can be sure that our labors on the Lord's behalf here on earth are not in vain. And this is such a word of encouragement because it's so easy over the course of the years to get discouraged, to say nothing matters, that our efforts have been pointless, they've been in vain, it's all been a waste. We, we see our friends and our family, they fall away from the faith. We think it's all been in vain. We see a culture move in directions toward decline and decadence and we despair. It's all been a waste. It's all been in vain. We see once promising endeavors fail. We see once vibrant ministries stagnate and decline and we think it's all been a waste. It's all been in vain. We see the Christian faith, you know, become subservient to to pre-existing political ideologies 
And we spend more time and energy differentiating ourselves from, you know, the wrong kind of Christian. We face all that and we think, what happened? Was any of this worth it? Did anything really matter? And Paul's answer in the face of all that, the, the, the discouragement thing, Paul's writing this letter to a church that he's planted that is just having all sorts of problems and, and divisions and struggles. And he could have easily said, this was a waste. But no, Paul's answer is this, in the face of all that, that nothing is wasted. As the song says, nothing is wasted. Nothing is wasted. In, in the hands of our Redeemer, nothing is wasted You know, God's word goes out. It accomplishes its purpose. It's not going to return to him void. And as Paul says elsewhere, he writes that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. We're like the stone masons, the bricklayers, working on a great medieval cathedral. We we are placing small stones in in a great glorious construction that we might not see the beauty of in our lifetimes but eventually we surely will. And so what matters is not our success. What matters is that we work in such a way that we are steadfast and immovable. And what that means is that we're firm, we're secure, we're rooted in place. We don't give up. We don't give in. We don't abandon our post. We just keep working and building brick by brick. Trusting that even when it seems like we haven't made any progress, God is still present in the work. And resurrection means that that work will not just be thrown away, but that it will endure. And I close with this quote from uh, N.T. Wright's commentary on this verse, which I absolutely love. If it's true that God is going to transform this present world and renew our whole selves, bodies included, then what we do in the present time with our bodies and with our world matters. For far too long, many Christians have been content to separate our future hope from present responsibility. But that is precisely what Paul refuses to do. His full-body doctrine and promise of resurrection sends us back to our present world and our present life of bodily obedience to the world in the glorious but sobering knowledge that if there is continuity between who and what we are in the present and what we will be in the future— We cannot discount the present life, the present body, and the present world as irrelevant. On the contrary, it is a matter of the greatest encouragement to Christian workers, most of whom are away from the public eye, unsung heroes and heroines, getting on faithfully and quietly with their God-given tasks, that what they do in the Lord during the present time will last, will matter, will stand for all time. How God will take our prayers, our art, our daily work, our pastoral care, our teaching, our whole selves, how God will take this and weave its varied strands into the glorious tapestry of his new creation, we can at present have no idea. That he will do so is part of the truth of the resurrection and perhaps one of the most comforting parts of it all. Amen. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for this towering monument that Paul has given us, a testimony to to the centrality of the resurrection in, in the good news that we have received in which we stand firm. And Lord God, I pray that each and every one of us would take from this passage encouragement 
to continue working on your behalf. Continue trusting that it's, it's not by might nor by power, but by your spirit that all that we do will redound to your glory and your honor and your praise and that whatever belongs to you will last both in this life and in the world to come. We pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ, the crucified and risen one. Amen.